when we first sat down to think about the company was, first and foremost, let's make a place where we want to work. Because we figured if it was a place we wanted to work, even if it didn't work out, even if everything kind of fell apart after a few years, we'd have fun. This is something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to start my own company. So I got to take a shot at it. Otherwise, I'll never forgive myself if I don't even give it a shot and go for it. There were several points during the life of the company where it looked like we might not make payroll. You're all meeting at this certain point to go do something in the game, and World of Warcraft was one of those kind of games where you're going to get together and you're going to go fight this beast together and, and beat him, and you can only do that if everybody really shows up. In some way, you have this social responsibility to meet with the rest of the guild and plan your strategy and then go attack this beast and slay it. Uh, I think it's a pretty good plan. We should be able to pull it off this time. What do you think, Abdul? Can you give me a number crunch real quick? Yeah, give me a sec. I'm coming up with 32.33, uh, repeating, of course, percentage of survival. Well, that's a lot better than we usually do. Uh, All right, thumbs up. Ready, guys? Let's or? do this. Leroy Jenkins! Oh, my God, he just ran in. God damn it, Leroy. Hi, good morning. I'm Derek Morton. I'm the CEO of Flowplay. I'm about to be 64 years old. I live and work in the Seattle area. My home is in Issaquah, which is a small town outside of Seattle. My company, Flowplay, I started about 16 years ago with my partner, Doug Pearson. It is a virtual worlds company. We make light 2.5D virtual worlds where people can play games, fall in love, get married, and interact with people from all over the world. So are they joining this to get married or are they just happenstance while they're playing the game? Our model is you think you're coming to play games. So you come into this thinking, well, I just I want to pass the time for a little while and, and play some games for a minute. But what happens is you get in this community of people and you're surrounded by activity and people from all over the world that are also playing games. And uh, you meet them and you get to know them and you find out who their kids are and where they live and all about them. And you become friends. And before too long, you form relationships. And in many cases, the relationship is love. People get married in real life as a result of meeting in the games. But we also had 65,000 people get married in our wedding chapel in our games. So is this how you met your wife and fell in love? <laughs> no, I've been married for a very long time. Well before there was internet or games. Were you looking for a new wife and that's why you wanted to make this then? <laughs> no, we, what we really felt was uh, interesting was to take a virtual world and wrap it around a bunch of small games. So that was the original concept. We were going to take lots of little small games like slot games or blackjack. Uh, in the beginning, it was even games like Bejeweled and, and games from uh, other developers and wrap them in a virtual world where you could meet people and you could exchange ideas and conversation with them. Uh, and we just felt like that was going to be something really interesting to work on. And something that uh, would be, you know, an important project and, a, and a, you know, a financially rewarding project. So if anyone wanted to check them out while we're doing the interview or maybe they're downloaded in the background, I don't know how many games you have total. I'm looking at like four on your website, but are there like two main ones I think you were telling me that maybe people could check out during the interview? Yeah, the easiest way to go see them is go to VegasWorld.com. As our oldest game, it's been around for about 10 years. About to be our biggest game is called Casino World, and you can find that at CasinoWorld.com. It's also on your phone, so you can find Casino World on your Android phone or your Mac, uh, your iOS phone. Three ways to get there. 
the best experience is on the PC because it's the most immersive. On a PC, you can really put it full screen and see all the characters and, and have a better experience. Uh, most people use the phone as just a way to touch base with their friends in the games, but the real experience is on the PC at the casinoworld.com URL. And just a uh, heads up, I guess if anyone goes to it, you almost made me want to start playing while we're going. I guess after you press OK, you start hearing music. I've got headphones on, so it doesn't matter. But if you're trying to do this at work, just heads up after you press OK. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. I, I've had something like that, you know, when, when you have the volume up and you're in a boring meeting or something. And <laughs> I'm just yeah. giving a forewarning in case anyone does take a look at it. So We do a, a focus group every single month watching players play it. And, and it's a prize they get when they first start loading the game. It's like, oh, well, there's music. Oh, let me turn this down. All right. And so anything else people should know about these games? Or I guess you kind of gave us a little background on the marriage thing, but is there something to compare it to that maybe people haven't heard or might have a better idea if they played other games in the past? Like, what is this compared to? What we're really trying to recreate is the experience of going to Las Vegas. Our Vegas World game, that was the concept. Our newest game, Seven Seas Casino, you're on a cruise ship and growing around the world, stopping at different ports. So that's kind of what we're creating is a Vegas-style or cruise ship-style experience of just being with other people and, and playing games and having fun. Uh, there's even just nightclubs where you can just go to a nightclub and go dancing, all kinds of things that are not games. Uh, but for the most part, that's what people come for, and that's where most of the activity is, is, is in our games. How many people are actually like on the platform or in total using these games versus like the computer PC total and I guess like an Android total or iPhone total? Yeah, uh, we're predominantly a PC business because that's what the best experience is. So uh, about 92% of our activity is on the PC, on a laptop or on a desktop computer. About 400,000 people total, so figure about 35,000 of those are on the phone and the 400,000 people are, are playing on their, their Mac or, or PC laptops. And what's your normal demographic for these games? People are always surprised. Let me guess, is it older? It's older and it's ladies. I was going to say 60 plus like women, I don't know. I had this feeling with the casino in Vegas and just kind of quickly looking at it. If you ever walk by a slot machine, uh, those are our customers. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, they're predominantly uh, ladies over 55. But it's funny. I think part of the secret of our business is that in the game, you're hot and 25 years old for the most part. I mean, you can choose to make an avatar that's a little older, but nobody does. Everybody chooses a very attractive, very young avatar. I think that's part of what really adds to the excitement and adds to the staying power of the games is kind of an intoxicating thing for people to do, to sort of be young and attractive and have, you know, people talk to you that, you know, you never really get to talk to strangers that much. If you're an older lady uh, who may be retired or something, being in a world where you're very attractive and men talk to you and ask about you, is uh, that's an intoxicating thing. So I guess it depends on the age level, whoever's listening right now. But me, I'm just kind of envisioning something called The Sims was a PC game that people played. But you do that, but you're kind of going to the casinos. Like once, like you said, on the cruise ship casino kind of thing. And one is in Vegas where you're going casino to casino. Does that sound about right? Yes, that's it. Or you said, I think maybe Second Life is another one. I'm just trying to name off any other ones that people can maybe in their head get an idea. Maybe between those two, they'll get an idea of. Well, there's there's lots of popular casino style games like Slotomania is probably the biggest that there is. And that in Slotomania, that's all you do is you just play slots. You're not talking to people and you're not, there's no virtual world wrapped around it. So we are unique in that sense and that it's a combination of games and virtual world together, which is, is sort of the, the, the killer concept that we've created. 
No, absolutely. Because I mean, yeah, anyone could download a PC game and just press click and spin something over and over and over, right? And that's kind of boring. But the whole thing is really actually more like a Sims interface or like we said, Second Life or like a virtual reality. And then you happen to be doing these slots things, which is kind of the fun thing and maybe your moneymaker. I'm not exactly sure. But, you know, it's the experience of the community that really does it. It's not just pressing a button to spin something. It is. Our, our average customer has been with us three and a half years. If you think about that, what have you done consistently for the past three and a half years that's in the way of a game? The other thing that's kind of the secret sauce that's super cool is we've created this model where we make most of our money by selling people luck. And the luck is distributed as a community. So here's how it works. You go in and say you're going to play blackjack. You like to play blackjack. You sit at the blackjack table and you're with five other people, six people at a table. And you buy a beer in the game and everybody gets that beer that's at the table with you. While you have that beer, everybody's winnings go up. And so we improve the odds of the game as a result of you buying this, this beer or the champagne or whatever you're buying. There's a, there's a couple hundred of these different little things you can buy. Some are expensive and some are cheap. The cheap ones don't last as long. The expensive ones last for a really long time. But while everybody has these, you're winning more. And that really, you know, creates this sort of virtual cycle. I buy a beer, we start winning more, we're playing together, and then that beer goes away after a little while. And so somebody else buys a beer. And when they buy that beer, I get one too. So it's, it's this, you know, this community thing that, that's reinforced because everybody's buying these uh, good luck charms, they're called. And that's what drives our business. We make all of our money from selling people luck in games. And that's it? You don't get paid out anything else from all these users? Um, they buy clothes, they buy things for their avatar, things like that. It's kind of a small part of the business. We have a subscription where people are become VIPs. So most people that are, you know, have played the game for, you know, more than a month or two are a VIP player so that they get access to special stuff. But the vast majority of our revenue comes from these people that are buying luck for each other. Okay. Cause if you like paid out, like if it was a, let's say blackjack game and I'm playing in Vegas world or whatever, that'd be a lot more hiccups, right? I guess regulation wise and stuff. If you were trying to pay out earnings based on who won and whatnot. Sure. Um, we couldn't provide a game that provides real money wagering. That's regulated for sure. There are pockets of the U S where you can gamble online in New Jersey and Delaware parts of Nevada, things like that. But for the most part, our games played worldwide and because we're only able to offer it worldwide is because there's no actual cash out at the end of the game. You're just playing for, for fun money and rewards. Every, in Vegas world, the reward system is that there are almost 70 different hotel suites that you have that you can invite people to and have parties in and you get a better and better suite the more you play and the more you win. That's another kind of key factor in the games. People gather together at these parties and they buy these good luck charms for themselves and their friends at these parties. And then after the party, then they go gamble and spend those uh, good luck charms and have fun with them. Are they having like virtual orgies, these older ladies? You know, uh, there is a little bit of that going on. I knew uh, it. <laughs> I knew what I would do if I was in that. <laughs> you know, and, I mean, it's, it's a natural progression, right? If you fall in love with somebody in a, in a, in a virtual world and... You know, one thing leads to another, right? Well, yeah. Now we got everyone a little bit more excited for this interview. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, like I was just thinking, I mean, I don't know anything about regulation or all that, but that just seems like so much more of a hiccup versus like you trying to upgrade the avatars or give them more luck or whatnot to do these other things. So even if they're playing a game of blackjack or just spinning something, they're really not winning anything. They're just doing that while they're talking to other people. Yeah, they're getting the experience of winning. And that's, you know, it's kind of funny when you think about it. Like, you kind of know 
if you're a player in a casino somewhere, you know, the odds of you coming away richer rather than poorer when you started that game are pretty slim. I mean, you know, people will brag about what a great blackjack player they are, but really it's kind of a losing proposition. So people go, most people go into gambling with the idea that, well, you know, I'm probably not going to win, but I've, I've got a budget here of, uh, I'll call it $200 and I'm going to spend $200 just having some fun sitting in a slot machine, sitting at a blackjack table. And it'll last me for a couple hours. And after that, that's what I spend on entertainment. And I think people kind of accept that. And in our world, you can you can have that experience really for free if you want. I mean, 90% of our players don't spend any money. They just come to the game for free and enjoy just hanging out in the, uh, in the rooms with other people. As a small business owner, you're juggling 100 balls in the air and don't have time to interview candidates who just are not qualified for your role. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier for you to find the people you want to interview faster and for free. I bet you know what I love about LinkedIn Jobs, and that's just how quickly you can make that next virtual hire. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Then add your job in the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your network can help you find the right people to hire. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week Nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash millionaire. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Energetic Austin here. And if you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. So what does the average customer like spend per month? And I'm sure you have some metrics that we can get an idea of how much money you can generate from this. Yeah, our, our lifetime value of a customer is around $750 on a monthly basis. That probably only works out to about you know $10 a month or so. So the spend per month is not extraordinary on a per person basis, but it adds up, you know. It does. I mean, you say they come in like and 90% of people don't even pay, you're saying, right? Right. So altogether, you know, we're, we're doing, uh, was it four million a month off of, uh, 400,000 players. So it works out. 
Well, that sounds pretty awesome. Because, I mean, all of us have played games on our phones, especially if you're younger, like the new apps, like any of these like tower defense games or something like that, like simple ones, they all have to pay to upgrade. And I would say like if I downloaded one, that seems reasonable to spend like 10 or 20 bucks a month. People used to complain spending like even 99 cents on an app, which always boggled my mind. You know, it's like I always just thought about entertainment. I'm like, how much does a Xbox game cost or something like that? Or it might be 60, 70 or something like that. I'm like, if I spend 10 bucks a month and I play that game for two or three months, hey, that's worth it to me. It's entertainment. It's not being like, oh, complaining about a 99 cent app, which hopefully people kind of stop doing and 99 cents doesn't buy you anything anymore, right? Yeah, it's unfortunate that that's where the market has gone. It's just a, it's a, just a matter of sort of the progression of games as a product is that they had to go to a, a free to try model originally. I mean, I started in the, in the game business in the early nineties where, as you described, you go to the store, you look at the boxes and that's about all you can tell is like, Hey, this one's got a great box. I'm going to take the CD home and put it in my computer and it's going to cost me 30 to $70 to buy this thing. But that model sort of evolved with digital to be, I'm going to try this game, and if I like it, I'm going to spend some money on it. So it's been a struggle for people to try and, you know, put that genie back in the bottle. I mean, for big AAA games, no problem. You know, you're still going to buy your AAA DVD to play your big games. But for small games, it's it's hard to ask up front. People are very resistant to it because there's so much free content available. What's AAA mean? Oh, AAA just means the, the big game titles, you know, Gears of War... Oh, God. Call of Duty, Call stuff of Duty, like that. Yeah, stuff like that. Halo, FIFA. The big budget games that you, that everybody plays on console. Yeah, that's what I figured. I just wanted to make sure. I hate to always assume, and sometimes people don't know what acronyms. I don't know if that was an acronym or something like that, but you're just saying top of the top. Yeah, I don't think it actually stands for anything. It just means AAA is just like the top echelon of games, the ones that cost the most to produce and take the biggest teams. They're just the people that come and help you out with your car when you need it, right? <laughs> and in case anyone's yeah. wondering, now it's coming full circle. I have to share this with my grandma, this interview, but she gets me a yearly membership to AAA, which is oh, funny, fantastic because it's like, until you need it, you know, you don't care. And it's not something I really want to pay for, right? But I mean, if anyone's thinking like, oh, what could I get my grandson? Or yeah, I don't know how many grandmas or maybe a lot will listen to this episode <laughs> after we heard who li likes to play these games. But I always thought that was kind of a smart gift because once you need it, then it's a great thing to have. That's pretty interesting. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So hopefully I didn't deflect too much off our story here, but how many um, people actually work at your company? There's about 65 in our offices in Seattle. We have uh, some customer service and other support people around the world. I mean, we actually have uh, staff in Japan and Germany and all over the United States working from home. But the core team is 65 people working in Seattle in our downtown offices right near Pike Place Market. Awesome. Well, did you ever think you'd have a company grow to this size? You know, it's it's really funny. We, when my partner and I first started the company, we kind of had a target in mind. We're like, okay, this is the number that we want to we want to hit because you know, at some point, we're going to want to retire. We're going to want to have a you know a, a semi comfortable life somewhere. And you know, <laughs> we sold the company for ten x what our original sort of like would be would be good to do uh, number was. Oh, so you actually sold it, but you're still like an employee now of the business would call myself an employee investor. So we sold the company in December, but I'm a part owner of the new Go Forward company. We were bought by uh, Wind Creek, which is a, a land-based casino company. It was created by a, the Porch Creek Indian tribe. So the Porch Creek Indian tribe owns seven real money casinos around the world, and they really liked our social business. And so they bought us and uh, the deal closed in December. So I'm still there for another couple of years. 
making sure that there's a smooth transition to the new ownership and that my team is uh, all well taken care of before I ride off into the sunset. Congratulations. How much did you actually end up selling for? $146 million. Wow. You said you had a partner, right? Yes, me and Doug. It was just the two of you? Uh-huh. Do you basically split it or what? No, no. Our, our employees own a big part of the company because we've been around for 15 years and, we've, and every single employee in our company gets equity. So there was a, a big share of ownership that went to the employees themselves. And we had investors in the early days. Our biggest investor was Intel, the guys that make chips. And our second biggest in, uh, investor was the, the guys who created Skype, the Skype software. So we got, we got our first money from them back in 2007. We raised about $7.2 million to kick it off to, uh, to build the product. But that's the only money we ever raised. Uh, so from starting from like 2010, we became profitable and we were profitable ever since. Well, yeah, that's a great story. And hopefully, yeah, we can even work into how that arrangement worked. Because I think people, you know, who are listeners, it's always like debating, at least at me. I mean, I don't know what your thought process was right when you started. So, I mean, we'll rewind it to before this, but you said it started 15 years ago, right? So 2007. Mm -hmm. So even at that point in time, did you think in your head you're going to have employees and want them to have part ownership? Yeah, of course. It's a pretty typical thing in, in the tech industry. It's kind of expected. Like if you're going to struggle working at a startup, uh, you know, you, you join a 10 person company. It's hard work because you're, you're got a lot of plates in the air you're trying to balance. And so the reward for that is the, the possible equity participation that you might have and the, and the money that might come from that. You know, that's why people join startups or that's why I join startups. I really don't like large companies or like working for large companies. So I've always worked for a startup ever since I started in the game industry in the early nineties. And that's the proposition. Come here. Be part of a small team, have lots of jobs, lots of things you're working on, have lots of responsibilities, but get equity in the company and ownership in the company so that if, if there's an exit, you'll participate and you'll, you'll gain you know, personal wealth. Uh, I've been part of four startups that have sold. This is the first time that it's been my company that I co-founded. So you're most excited about this startup that sold, huh? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, it makes sense. I think we all have heard that. Like if you're getting in the tech, especially I think you usually hear Silicon Valley that, you know, people are going to get in it, that they're not going to hate as much, but they want some equity. But even with a game like yours, I'm like, I don't know how much money it necessarily take to even start up. Or I guess you had that thought process already in your head that you're actually going to give some equity to the employees. So, I mean, maybe it's just an industry by industry, but I know some founders, like, it would seem like it makes sense that you want to give ownership to some of your employees to hopefully maybe work harder. That's really the main reason, right? I guess to, to work harder and I guess you won't pay them as much up front. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on if you did in other industries that you think you should always do it or what is your thought process on that? I think you really empower people by at least giving them some incentive to make the business successful, right? So it doesn't have to be equity. It could be profit sharing, but some additional pay or some way to benefit from being part of a successful company. I mean, if you're going to work your butt off, uh, maybe you'll work your butt off just a little more if you know that as a result of your work, you're going to get more pay at the end of the day. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? You want people to do their best that they can do and to compensate them for it. They're going to work a little harder if they know that the harder they work, the more money they'll make. Makes total sense. Again, just being with your industry, maybe it makes more sense than some others, but it's always just hard to figure out to me. Have you always just been in the tech industry? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's the, it's the only legit job I've ever had. I mean, I've been a waiter. I've been a bartender. I've been a mechanic. I've had all kinds of jobs in my youth, but uh, my only real job has been working in games. 
Well, thank you for giving us a rundown. And again, congrats on selling the company. I think everyone's listening, so hopefully they can be in your position at one point in time. So do you want to go ahead and rewind it to the best part of your story when you think we get started in entrepreneurship, or you just let me know where you want to start it? Well, I, my story was a long and winding road. I, I didn't have a, 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 you know, a straight path to entrepreneurship or to the business world. I didn't even go to college until I was in my mid twenties. I tried to go to school when I got right out of high school. I, w- I went to UT, but uh, I don't know. I, I started studying chemical engineering and didn't feel like it was right for me. So I got out of school and just did a series of odd jobs. I was a mechanic. I was a bartender, a waiter, all kinds of crazy things. And then um, my mother passed away when I was 25, and it was like a, a shock to the system. Suddenly, I went from being sort of happy with my, you know, bachelor life of just uh, working and partying and playing, and uh, I got serious. And so I went back to school. I eventually got a, a full scholarship to the USC Film School, moved to LA from Texas, where I'm from, got a film degree, got a master's degree in film, and then uh, I started making movies. Yeah, real quick before we talk about movies, how did you get a full ride to USC? Because USC, I know, is a private school, too. It is. UT is University of Texas. That was in Austin, Texas. And then this is in Los Angeles, right? You go to USC. Yeah, I got super lucky, I think. I guess going back to that, what happened with my mother passing away and me getting serious about life, that's what happened. I went back to college and I, I was serious about it. So I made straight A's. I made great grades. Um, I had great relationships with all my professors and they recommended me to uh, that I should go to USC film school because it's the top film school in the country. It was what I was really interested in doing at the time was, you know, being, being a movie director. And this was, oh gosh, mid 80s. Yeah, 1985 or so. Yep. So I, I went to the University of Houston for just a couple of semesters. There it was called the Radio Television School. And my professors were like, hey, if you really want to be serious about this and you're doing great here, uh, you should go to USC Film School. So I applied and then they, they sent me a letter saying, hey, you're, you're on a full ride. Come on out. And you got your master's in film too, you're saying, back to back? I did. Technically, I did not complete my master's because I got a gig actually making a movie. What would have been my last semester? And I had to make a choice. Do I go off and actually make a film, a real motion picture, the reason why I came to college in the first place, or do I finish this degree and I decided to go off and, uh, and take a chance and, and work on a movie? It was fun. I don't regret it. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> look where you are today. So yeah, I want it either, you know, because <laughs> obviously it's hard when you look back, you're like, should I have done that? Should I not have done that? But, you know, your whole idea, the reason you're doing it is because you want to get a job but in the film industry. But I'm looking at your timeline. So you're just about 33 or so, I guess, when you had decided that this was your first real job. Again, before that, you said you just kind of bounced around and had service oriented jobs before that. Yep. What movie did you make? <laughs> it's called Intent. It's the only movie that I'm in IMDb. So if you look me up on IMDb, you'll find out that I was the line producer on a film called Sexual Intent. It's kind of a an erotic thriller. I knew it. I was going to say if you did Debbie Does Dallas, you know, <laughs> no, like, no, since, no, you're, no. since you're from Texas. Okay. It wasn't porn or anything. But it, <laughs> but it was an erotic. <laughs> what type of movie well, at the time, they were called erotic thrillers at the time. So at the time, you could the the way you made you made movies was you went straight to video. So we we were making movies that would we would just give them to Blockbuster, and Blockbuster would put them on a shelf, and you, that's how you made money making movies in the old days. You couldn't pull that off now. There's no scene for. I mean, we were making movies for two hundred thousand dollars. That's a very difficult thing to do these days. But back then, hey, there was a hungry machine that needed to be fed. People would go to Blockbuster and rent movies, and uh, we wanted to be one of the guys on the on the shelf. 
And so can you put that perspective? You said it cost about $200,000 to make a movie then. I mean, I'm curious about some film stuff here as well, but what would like a motion picture cost today that of a similar type of genre? I mean, you could still make a similar kind of movie for, you know, may call it a half a million dollars or so. So the budgets haven't increased. But the problem is there's no outlet for that anymore. There's nowhere to, to distribute an independent film. It's very difficult if there's not a, a named actor. There's not a shelf to put it on. It's very difficult to get a, a half million dollar movie. Netflix is not going to distribute it. You're not going to get the, the kind of distribution that you'd really need to make a go of it. So things have changed dramatically. You really have to either have a star. The only long shot opportunity for a, an independent film like that, that's if you had a half million dollars to get together, would be to take it to festivals, do the festival circuit. And if it's good enough, you know, really rise to the top of the festival. But that's a slog. It's a really tough business. Because, I mean, I'm looking, let's say, 10 most expensive movies. And I think all the Marvel ones I had heard cost like literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so just for perspective, in case anyone has no idea, right? I mean, it's kind of crazy once you start like learning about how much some of these digital ones cost and whatnot. Yeah, they look like Avengers. It's 422 million. And that's a funny story about how I came to games is I was an entrepreneur in the filmmaking industry as well, because I I would have to go out and raise the money, put the money together to actually get a film done. And then, um, you know, I was trying to finish up a film I was working on and trying to raise money for the next one to work on when a guy called me that knew me and said, hey, I'm I'm working at this company and they're looking for a producer, but it's it's in video games. Would you be interested in, in producing a video game? This is like 93 at the time, I didn't have a job job. My only job was going out and raising money for whatever was going to be my next movie. And uh, so I said, sure. So I went down and uh, I produced this small project for them. And I was hooked. It was amazing. I got to work with tech people. I got to work with artists. You know, it was very. it's very similar to making a movie. I mean, mo- movies require very creative people and some technical people doing all the photography and things like that. I was really hooked. And uh, my wife really appreciated that I was getting a paycheck every two weeks. So that didn't suck. <laughs> and that's all I've done from then on. You know, I did not even know you had that, like, even when you're doing the movie stuff, this is the main question I was going to ask you was like finding investors for movies, because my understanding, again, I don't know much about it, but it's one of those things where you go ask people who are really, really wealthy to put money into a movie. But most of them, like 99% of them, don't work out at all and they get no money back? Is that kind of the idea of like the risk analysis of like, hey, is it worth it or not? I'm just curious because obviously you have a better idea than I do. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no po folk invest in movies. It's it's all very wealthy individuals, you know, dentists, doctors, and lawyers that, that invest in movies in the old days. And people like you now who've sold their <laughs> company for $146 million. I'm actually talking to some guys that uh, I, I work with in films back in the day who uh, I might, you know, invest in a project with them. Hey, I've got a film idea. Austin <laughs> does Austin. Oh, God. <laughs> you, you, I hope you're talking about the city, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And my name's Austin, too, in case you don't know. So there, that's where I was going with it. It's a play on Debbie Does Dallas, in case anyone's wondering. When I have to explain my jokes, they're much better. My wife always tells me that. So. <laughs> I was actually born in Austin, Texas. Okay, nice. So again, the percentages of these movies working out, it's really like super low, right? As far as after you find an investor? It is. It's kind of a vanity thing. It, it, all kinds of things come into play when it comes to convincing someone that has money to invest in a movie project. 
sometimes it's as simple as like getting their girlfriend a role. That was an, often a thing that would happen. It would be like, you'd be talking to this lawyer about, you know, hey, I'm looking for twenty five, $30,000 investment in this small film I'm making. And they're like, I have this really beautiful girlfriend and she really wants to be an actress. And, you know, you'd say, well, <laughs> we can probably find a role for her in our movie. Perfect. So that's how you get most of your money raising? It was. And, and, you know, a lot of people just like the idea of having their name on a film to be listed in the credits, to be given a title of executive producer or some other role that just gives them a, a name on the screen credits. Right. And I heard that it really matters whose name comes first and in the order of them, people get really sensitive about oh, that. Yeah. It's funny that I've just learned all these topics recently by listening to podcasts. I'm like, I had no idea, you know, because I'm not from that world. But apparently people fight over that. And that really matters. Like if you're the seventh writer mentioned versus the first or second or whatever. There's all kinds of crazy things that if you'll look in the credits for the actors, there'll be things where they say with so-and-so. And then at the very end, and so-and-so. And that person who gets the and at the end probably had to negotiate that spot uh, as a result of the, either their fame or their salary or some other thing. That whole string of like who is listed when at the head end is, is very important as well. Do they forget that everyone who watches the movies never sticks around and let me pause and see what order number you're in. <laughs> you know, I know it matters a lot to them, I guess, you know, but it's like having the title of a company like, hey, I could be CEO of this podcast or I could be the virtual assistant for this podcast. I mean, it doesn't matter to me, but some people really like those whatever name they're given on those things. But you're saying you did this for like two years, just a couple of years out of school. Yeah. And again, I want to reemphasize that out of school, you were 33 because you started a little bit later so that people listening now, I think sometimes you're thinking like, oh, if I didn't start in my early 20s entrepreneurship, I can't be successful. Right. And we've already heard your outcome and you didn't really get started in this movie business and even really getting a real quote unquote normal job, if you will, <laughs> till you're 33. Right. And then a couple years after that, you're just mentioning that you produced your first, I guess, were brought on to help produce a video game. Yep. Okay. So yeah, you were 35 when you did that. So again, I just want to reemphasize that people listening now that you can do it at any age. Don't ever think that, hey, I've started too late. So you did this and you said you were getting a paycheck every two weeks. You said you were married. So how long had you been married? And tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, I married my wife that I met at the University of Houston. Gosh, 1987. So what is that? We're, we're coming up in March on 35 years. Her name is Stephanie. Uh, she's an amazing woman. She, at one point, was the senior vice president of sales for Paramount Pictures in L.A. So she had a, you know, a pretty, a pretty cool career being uh, selling movies to cable. So she, her job was to go to HBO, go to Showtime, and take Paramount's movies to them and, and negotiate deals with them. Okay, so it worked out for both of y'all when you moved out to California. If she was going to do that, it did. It was never any something in her wildest dreams either. I mean, she graduated from college with a communications degree, and she did all kinds of things like sell temporary help services, and eventually just got a, a kind of not an entry level, but a mid level career job at a motion picture studio, and worked her way up to senior vice president. But yeah, I'll bring her back up later in the story because I was just curious how she took your entrepreneurship lifestyle because obviously that comes in at some point. We haven't hit that yet, but why don't you just jump back to, again, you starting with this video game company, kind of helping the production of it, it sounded like, and just keep letting us know what happened there. So my first real gig was working for a company called Graphic Zone. And Graphic Zone was an amazing company in the early 90s that was backed by Warner Brothers Studios. 
And they had this cool concept. The, uh, the idea was that they believed that music was going to be interactive, that the future of music was not going to just be listening, that it was going to be interactive. You're going to interact with music, hear more about the artists, see interviews with the artists, and explore the music really in a visual realm. So some of the first projects that they backed, we did, uh, we did a project for Prince called Prince Interactive, which ex- you could go to a, a mixing board and virtually mix a Prince song with all 48 tracks. You could explore his, his Paisley Park house in 3D, all kinds of crazy stuff. We did one for Bob Dylan called Bob Dylan Highway 61 Interactive. I did an amazing project with Willie Nelson where I went on the road with Willie for two weeks. Super cool dude, <laughs> I gotta say, kind of a hero of mine. That was an amazing company, an amazing job I had, like to, get, to be able to interface with uh, big musicians and talk about their life and music and put together pro- interactive projects with them. It was kind of a dream job. But that all came crashing down with the internet. This company went public. We were firing on all cylinders until the late 90s when people really didn't need to go buy a CD-ROM in the store to do this kind of stuff. Everything's were going digital and uh, we didn't move fast enough with the times. So that company went bankrupt in 1999 and I was, you know, looking for my next gig. A buddy of mine that I'd worked with at Graphic Zone, he was heading up this marketing company for movies. So they, they really focused on doing the trailers, doing the posters and doing everything. So he hired me to make the websites for big movies and to make the games for movies. So I was in the interactive division and made all kinds of small games and websites for, for different movies. <laughs> Side note here. One of my coolest gigs at that time was I got the gig to be the producer of Schwarzenegger.com. So I built Arnold Schwarzenegger's first website and I got to hang out with him. Oh gosh, probably about a dozen times. Got to sit with him for an hour or more and interview him and talk to him about what he wanted in his website, what his plans were for it, what kind of products he wanted to sell people on the website and what kind of stories he wanted to tell. So that was super cool. Getting to go to Arnold Schwarzenegger's office every couple of weeks for a few months. And so you just learned that skill set while you were at the video game company? Yeah, yeah. Producing a project, you know, conceiving of something creative and working with writers and artists and engineers to sort of put it all together. And so you said it went bankrupt in 99. So you were 41 years old at that point, but you had been like a W2 employee the whole time while you were there? Yep, I was. And were you making decent money? For me, it was great. <laughs> it was the first time ever that I made over 100K. So it was real money at the time. And your wife, I guess, was doing well too financially. She was. She was. She was working at Paramount. Uh, actually, she was working for E Entertainment at that time. E Entertainment Television. After you get laid off, that's when you do the Schwarzenegger site, and you're just doing kind of odd jobs. No, I wouldn't call them odd jobs. I mean, I was working on big movies, major motion picture websites, and games for those uh, major motion pictures. I did that for about a year and a half. It was fun. It was a gas. Sorry. Yeah, I guess I should have said, were you like an independent contractor, kind of helping him come in, or like how were you? No, I was an employee of Cimarron. The Cimarron Group is a big company in LA. I was a you know W2 employee for them for a while. Okay, so that happened right after you got laid off Graphic Zone. You were still fine financially and everything. You saved your money and were just like lived within your means. I did play Diablo for about a month before I went out to the new job. Hey, Diablo was a fucking fun <laughs> game, man. Diablo One, Diablo Two, what? Diablo One, yeah. I played that a lot. That was so. Now it's making more sense to me why you did this casino. That was probably like the first real computer game that. Now I definitely get it, dude. 
that was really that, that was the first one that was you could do in that in starcraft i feel like were kind of the two that took online gaming to like oh you can play with your friends or play with your neighbors and stuff like that um online while doing that i would play diablo till three four in the morning sometimes just lost <laughs> i killed diablo many times <laughs> did you have uh any kids at this point my first child was born in 1997, my son Trevor, and then I had a daughter a couple of years later in 1999, Grace. After a while, I was working at Cimarron, was kind of a little bit restless, wanted to do something a little bit different. I wanted to be more into games because and not just websites, take on something a little more long form. And so I, uh, I got an, an interview and eventually got the gig to be the executive producer at this company called iWin. If you can imagine, this is 1999. and this is, you know, the the bubble of the internet. I mean, things were just white hot on the internet. If you had an idea for a, a website, you know, you could raise money in a heartbeat. So iWin had raised $25 million in their Series A, which is a huge Series A, just to start this game website. So their idea was to have lots of small games, trivia games, you know, puzzle games, things like that. And to, you know, be supported through advertising. And at the time, you could do that because internet companies needed eyeballs so badly, they would pay through the nose for this stuff. And so uh, that iWin became the number six, at its peak, the number six website in the world. It was just a phenomenal, phenomenal trajectory. It's tough, isn't it? But that's to a podcast that goes to like 30,000 people. So it's just like, there's wow. so many people who listen and don't do anything. You know what I'm saying? I want to give you credit for what you're doing because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening. But I was curious how many people are paying. I mean, for me, my dad even said, Bren, why are you paying this guy? What What's he giving? I said, it's, I want him to keep going. That's why I'm paying, yeah. you know, and I do believe in pay it forward. It's not a lot of money. And, you know, I can do the math. I belong to this international organization and you get once a month meeting, we all get together. And I've gotten frustrated because I go in there and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything. And we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month and it's hard to justify, you know. Honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings. <laughs> and when you're there, did you just work for them for a little while? Because you said you were with the Cimarron Company, too, at that point in time, right? Or like right when you had gotten laid off? Or So I guess maybe it was 2000 when I when I joined um, iWin. So you did the Cimarron Company, then you did iWin? Yep. Well, I guess after you had your kids, too, I guess I was curious, was your wife getting mad at you? You couldn't find a job. It was just only a month. You couldn't find a job, basically, you're saying? Yeah. So she was still cool with you playing Diablo? <laughs> well, I mean, luckily, you know, I'd done fairly well because, I, as I mentioned, the puppy did go public for a while before it went out of business. So I, I was able to sell some of my stock and things like that before things got bad. So we had a you know some savings. We, we had a nest egg. So it, we weren't suffering in any way. Well, that's good. I mean, that is an important point that I'd like to bring up a lot is that if you're spending using credit cards and everything like that, you don't have the opportunity to do stuff like this, right? And I think it's all right to relax every once in a while and decide what your next move is, because especially if you weren't even having fun at that company, it's like you probably hard to find a job at that point in time anyways, but you found one pretty quick. So it sounds like everything kind of worked out. Yeah, it was, like I said, the, the late 90s, early 2000s was an amazing time. I mean, things were just on fire. It was interactive. It was online, that kind of stuff. It was a great time. 
And so as you're doing this iWin company, right, that was your, you said your next job. How long were you there and what'd you do? Uh, well, I was an executive producer and eventually they changed the role to vice president of product. So I just headed up the team. Anything that had to do with the creative and the content of the games and the website, I was in charge of. Awesome gig. And iWin, like I described, being the number, eventually being the number six internet company in the world, it was an amazing ride. And we eventually sold the company within 14 months. We sold to an, a public company called Uproar. So I became the vice president of product of the combined companies. And then amazingly enough, Uproar was bought by Vivendi. So at the time in the early 2000s, there was this French water company that was had made tons of money just being the infrastructure company of France, providing water and electricity and things like that. And they were just on a buying spree. So you probably heard of Vivendi Universal and all kinds of things. So they bought Universal Studios. They were just on a shopping spree in the early 2000s. And we were one of the companies they bought. And so my CEO became the head of Vivendi Universal Games, which included Blizzard. And I was the vice president of product. So I got to work under him as he headed up everything that was going on with all of those games, with Blizzard's games, with they had a bunch of studios all over the United States and the world, really, making games. Blizzard, they did StarCraft and WarCraft and stuff like that, right, too? Yep. Yeah, WarCraft was their first game. In fact, I, I used to have a, when I was at Graphic Zone, they were in the office next door in the early 90s when they were working on WarCraft 1. I still remember WarCraft 1, actually, it's, without even looking at a picture. I remember how kind of pixelated it was and stuff. But all right, everything's starting to come full circle. I get, you know, how you think about your gameplay today, because it's kind of like based on what these are early games are, right? But it's just a little bit more avatar-ish. I mean, that was the fun part about these games in the early 90s, 2000s. Before you could play video games on your PlayStation or Xbox or whatever, or play on your computer, but you still weren't interactive. And what was so cool about these games is like, again, going on the computer and being able to play my friends like after school or during summer. And again, yeah, play till three or four in the morning. That was the age of this. I mean, you tell me if you think so, too, since you were in the middle of it. Yeah, I think the most powerful thing that you notice and you, from this experience is that playing with people online, you really feel like you get to know them, right? And, and even I know I, there are people that I've never seen face to face that I'm friends with or felt like I was friends with just from, you know, being in Diablo raid parties and, and being in, and I played Sims for a while on the, in the Sims Online and had a, a huge group of people that I was hanging out with. It's, you really feel like they're real friends because it, it is. You, any kind of conversations you have with these people online, you get to know them and you really feel like that they're part of your, uh, your friend group. Well, did you ever have an issue of I mean, it does come addicting. Luckily, I mean, I was like young enough for that I don't think it really mattered too much. But if I got into it at my age now, like I feel like I almost get to it. That's why I won't buy a new Xbox or a new PlayStation <laughs> or anything, you know, to be honest, because I know I, like my addictive personality, those games are kind of fun. The shooter games are too much because then, at least for me personally, just because you have to put in so much time to get. But these certain games, I mean, you still have to put in time to get good and stuff. But I mean, at your age at that time, in your young 40s, and I guess you just said you had two kids and a wife, were you playing games too much or no? Like, Because again, I felt like that would be an issue for me if I was in your shoes, just starting to play these games. <laughs> well, to get, as an example of my my level of addiction, there was a time, I guess it was right around the time I started Flow Play, where I was playing Warcraft, World of Warcraft. And it came around into December and my wife and I, for our resolution was, she was going to quit smoking and I was going to quit Warcraft. And those two things were at the same level. 
right? Her smoking and me stopping Warcraft to give you an idea of, of how much Warcraft was part of my life at that point. So she was going through three packs a day or something? Oh, only maybe a pack a day, but I was only getting like four or five hours sleep a night because I would be up till two in the morning playing Warcraft and, and back up in the, the next day to go to work. Was it still fine when your marriage and everything though? Because again, you only have so much time and especially if you're like raising kids too, like what was that like? Well, that was, that was my dirty secret. You know, my wife would go to bed at 9, 9.30 and, and so I would hop on my PC and be playing until two, three in the morning. So it really just took out of the sleep. You still saw your kids and did stuff with them. Sleep was the big thing that was denied. That was where the shortfall was. But you're still able to attend all their stuff and, you know, school plays, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm just asking because, <laughs> I mean, this type of thing does happen, right? People have different types of addiction, whether it's drug or alcohol or whatever. It's no judgmental thing on any of them. It's just it's just trying to figure out how you juggle that literally while you're trying to you haven't started your own business yet, it sounds like, but it's still just trying to juggle the hours. So I think it always helps to hear from people's experiences on this. No, it can be powerfully addictive, partially from the power of the game and partially from just the relationships and friendships you form with people when you're playing the game. You almost feel sort of a duty, like, I don't know if you've ever been part of a guild in games, but if you have, being part of a guild in a game, you're all meeting at this certain point to go do something in the game. And World of Warcraft was one of those kind of games where you're going to get together and you're going to go fight this beast together and, and beat him. And you can only do that if everybody really shows up. In some way, you have this social responsibility to come in at 10 o'clock at night and meet with the rest of the guild and plan your strategy and then go attack this beast and slay it. I guess luckily for you too, it's at night when a lot of these people, I guess, are playing versus like middle of the afternoon if you had to, you feel like you had to get your World of Warcraft in at your lunch hour or something like that, right? So it's, I guess there's a lot more interaction then. I mean, the whole idea with the clans, right? And having different friends on there and stuff. I mean, it seems like that's why it makes sense and why it became kind of addictive. I forgot where I left off. You were saying, oh, the Vindy, is that Vivendi? Vivendi. Vivendi. All right. Yeah. So they were this French company buying up the companies that you were at. And how did they have so much money to buy like even Universal Studios, you said? Do you know? Yeah. Um, like I said, they, they own the rights to supply water to all the citizens of France and other utilities and things like that. So they were this cash-rich organization that just branched out and just started buying up things all over the world. And at the time, the CEO of Vivendi, he really wanted to be a movie mogul. He didn't want to be a water guy. <laughs> you know, his, his passion was not to be the CEO of a water company. His passion was to be a studio executive, essentially, to be at the head of power of the filmmaking. So he could get a, his wife in movies? <laughs> maybe, maybe. I didn't, I never met her. See, I do listen. I do listen. All right. So after they bought up and like, I guess, how much longer were you at these games before you actually kind of started your first company? Or I guess, I don't know if it was your only company, but at least how long were you a W2 employee before we started your company? Floatplay's the only company that I've been the founder of. At Graphic Zone, I got stock. At iWin, I got ownership as being a vice president of a, of a company that, that was, uh, you know, had raised money from VCs and stuff. The next company I worked for was called Gamehouse. That's what brought me to Seattle. So Gamehouse was some guys that I had done licensing deals with. I had licensed some of their games. They were a small shop. There was just a couple of guys. I think there were 12 people at the time, but they didn't do anything really much consumer facing. So I came up to polish up their website and develop sort of a, a consumer business for them to go direct instead of selling their games to people like Microsoft and Yahoo and stuff. And that went really well. We sold that company to Real Networks. 
And I had a piece of the company at the time and I had to stay on at Real Networks for at a three-year commit to stay there, but I didn't quite make it all the way. But the lucky thing that happened while I was working at Game House, I was the, at that time the VP of marketing, was I met my future partner, Doug. So we had this um, opportunity to make one of the first mobile games for Microsoft in 2003. And so I was looking for somebody that might be able to pull this off because we'd never made a mobile game before. Nobody really had made mobile games in 2003. So I found this really interesting guy, Doug Pearson, who has a PhD in artificial intelligence. He's an incredibly smart individual. And so he decided he'd, uh, he'd take this project on for us and built a mobile game. And he did an amazing job. Microsoft loved the project. And so after we sold the company to Real Networks and we had this experience of making mobile games, Real Networks decided that mobile games were, might be the future. So they put me in charge of their mobile game division. And we built 20 mobile games together with Doug's engineering over half of those games. And as a result of meeting him and working with him in this way, I'd really decided that I wanted to start a company with him, that he would be an incredible partner and would be a great combination because, you know, I'm a creative and business guy. I have an MBA from UCLA and Doug is an extremely knowledgeable technology guy. So I felt like as a combination, we'd be a, a perfect combo. And then so you talked him into 2007, you're going to go ahead and start your company? Yeah. So in 2006, I approached him and said, hey, you know what? My end of my three-year terms coming up with Real Networks. And I think the next thing I want to do is uh, start a company. And I think I want to start a company with you. What do you think? And he didn't, he didn't have to think long about it. I think it was like the next day when he said, you know what? Let's do this thing. So in 2006, we started meeting once a week on Wednesday nights to try and figure out what the company would be. All we knew was that we wanted to start a company together. We didn't know what that company was going to be. So for almost a year, we met on Wednesday nights for a couple hours to try and figure this out until finally we landed on an idea that we liked and um, started Flowplay the following year. And your idea was, hey, we like older women. We want to play video games with them or what? Yeah, you know, the, the, the idea was really that, so this is 2006, imagine. So Second Life was fairly popular, but there was also this thing where you would go to these websites and play these small games, these puzzle games, a little bit of little bitty fighting games and things. And what we didn't see was a great way to make money at either one of these. So we, we thought if you took a virtual world and a virtual economy and wrapped it around a lot of these small games, that you'd really have something. And so our first game was for girls. It was called Our World. That game lasted for 13 years. So our world was a virtual world for teenage girls where they had an apartment, they had an avatar, where we had thousands and thousands of clothing items and hairdos. They could be a waitress in a restaurant and wait on people that were really on a date. So you could take a girl on a date, sit in a booth at a, at a hamburger shop, order French fries and have a waitress bring them to you who is a real person. It was incredible. It was, it was a fun, fun game. How do you dream up that idea of that game? We felt like as a, as a game company, as an industry, that uh, young girls were kind of underserved, that, uh, you know, most of the games that uh, people were making were for, for young guys, right? That the girl audience was kind of an underserved audience. We also saw this thing, you might not remember it, you might not have had kids at the time. There's a thing called Club Penguin back in the mid-2000s, late-2000s, that was super popular as well. But it was, everybody was a penguin. You know, there were these mini-games. I played this once. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And we felt like, well, if they can make an incredible business, because I think the company sold for like $150 million at the time. Oh, my gosh. To Disney, we were like, well, if people can make a, have a $150 million outcome <laughs> selling their business to Disney, 
and it's just a bunch of penguins walking around on ice, we can make a, a, a virtual world that is the, the place you go when you graduated from Club Penguin. That's kind of the other way we thought about it. Like, what would be, if you know, now you're 12 and you're too old for Club Penguin anymore. What's the next game you want to play? And so that was where we kind of started off with, uh, with our world. Just, I remember this Club Penguin. Would you say it's a virtual reality world or no? Yeah, I mean, it's a virtual world in the sense that you're a penguin among a bunch of other people that are also penguins, but you're chatting and you're talking to one another and you're trading items, you're playing games together. So it was, it was super interactive and it was really a fun community, but kind of crazy for uh, a bunch of nine and 10 year olds. It was very like basically 2D based almost, you know, it's just it's like a yeah. <laughs> like a cartoon penguin. It's not like we're talking about the 3D worlds of Diablo and Starcraft no, 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 no. and Age of Empires <laughs> and stuff like that. So that's very interesting that I mean, I would never have known that they sold for that much. <laughs> it's very cartoonish and silly. So that's amazing. OK. And so you're saying, yeah, we could probably do something like this. Because that could be either gender, I guess, playing that when you're that young or whatever. But even when you're doing that, I guess it sounds like maybe was this your specialty of figuring out games that worked? Because it sounds like everything's kind of been successful up to this point, every game that you've done. I'm just wondering, like, you know, how you're able to figure that out, like this VR, our world, like you're talking about the world for girls ones that you started with your buddy or co-founder there. Like, how did you even test that? I understand your logic. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of girl games or anything like that, but how did you actually test that? Well, I, I think a lot of it just comes back to approaching things as an entrepreneur, right? If I made games for me that I'd want to play, and I realize this in making movies too, that nobody would play them but me, that you really have to take some of the things I learned in business school, but just things I learned as a consumer and as a business guy that you're really looking for where there are openings in a market. That's the first thing you look for is like, is there pain? Is there, is there uh, an underserved market? And what would that underserved market look like? So you're really doing an analysis to sort of look where you can fit in and what you can do. It's, just not, it's not a matter of just saying, hey, I got a great idea for a game. Let's go make this thing. It's like, where is there an opportunity to have a business that just happens to be this game that you're going to make? And so this was your first game that you made with Doug when you started your company, you're saying? Yes, Our World. The name of the company, did you have a different name? I'm just wondering, because I, I know you've talked about the games that you've developed and whatnot, but I didn't know if it was still the same called Flowplay then, or what, what was the name? It's always been Flowplay. Uh, as a result of this book I read, there's a, there's a famous concept called Flow, and I can't even pronounce the guy's name that wrote the book. I was traveling to, to China. I was working with a team there on a, on a, on a mobile game. And uh, I read this book called Flow. And at the time, it just seemed like uh, a really great concept. The concept of flow is like, imagine you're, you're climbing a mountain and there, you have this experience of like being completely focused on every step you're making and, and, and how to tie the, the knots and, and how to achieve this adventure that you're on. And that state of being is called being in flow. So I, I felt like that was something that you know, I'd experience in games as well is that flow state where you're really just focused and you're, all of your attention is completely focused on the game. And so I thought it'd be a great name for a game company. So we came up with Flow Play and it was available. Nobody had ever used it before. So we got the domain and we we're off to the races. I agree with the pronunciation when I've heard of getting in the flow. I just played this on Google. I'm going to try to say this person's name. Here it is. Moheli Chesimi Hai E. Good luck with it's, that one. <laughs> it's a, a Hungarian American psychologist. The last name must have, I don't even, I can't even count how many letters they have, but 
Yeah. It's an amazing book. <laughs> I, it, no, I've, I've heard of it getting in the flow state. I think people have heard of that, you know, and it makes total sense. I mean, it's like anyone listening now, I'm sure they've got total focus in on this interview, right? As they're learning <laughs> a bunch, but no, it makes sense. So yeah. And flowplay.com. I mean, it makes sense. I, I like the name and everything, but I guess it wasn't even an app game that you made with your partner, Doug. I mean, at the time, I'm just curious when you get set up, did y'all both put equal amount of money in? Like, how did you figure this out? Because at this point, even though you've been not started a company, you're always kind of in an entrepreneurship roles, trying to figure out what makes sense and making games and whatnot. But I'm just curious, like financially and all that, like if someone's getting started, what worked out for you when you started Flowplay? As I've described, I, I was, you know, pretty lucky in that Graphic Zone had gone public. Iwin had sold to Uproar. Uproar had sold to Vivendi. And then a game house had sold to real network. So at every one of those junctures along the way, I had had a, a pretty positive outcome. It's not always easy for most people to start this kind of entrepreneurial adventure. But for me, it was easier than it would have been because I had enough savings and enough of a war chest personally, uh, a nest egg to really say, hey, you know, I'm going to try something and I'm not going to be able to pay myself for at least a year or two. But this is something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to start my own company. And it's sort of, you know, my bucket list. So I got to take a shot at it. Otherwise, I'll never forgive myself if I don't even give it a shot and go for it. And again, you're 49 years old at the time. So part of you, when you're going for it, when you said your wife gave up cigarettes and you gave up World of Warcraft, <laughs> was that it? Yep. That, that was right before we started the company. Yeah. Is that part of the reason too? Did you realize you'd have to give that up to kind of start the company or no? Or you just figured as I should stop it? <laughs> that, that, that certainly played into it. It was like, I don't need this distraction. I don't need this this thing that I do every night because the thing I'm going to be doing every night for a while is, well, because part of the responsibility is like I took money from friends and family to start this business. And so that was a weight on my shoulders. It's, it's one thing if you're sort of just taking the chance by yourself. I raised a few hundred thousand dollars just from people that I knew to kick off the business. And when people have given you that kind of confidence, you you don't want to screw it up. You want to do the best job you can possibly do. And so that was one of the reasons why I felt like I needed more focus. I needed to just put World of Warcraft down and move on. Did you have enough money yourself? Did you have a few hundred thousand dollars where you would have even needed it from friends and family, but you just wanted it from friends and family instead? Well, I, I felt like the money I had was what I needed to live on. Me and Doug, we did put in uh, about 50K each just to kick things off to get it started. But we raised money from uh, investors and friends and family within the first few months that we, that we opened our doors. We'd kind of had been talking to people for six, eight months beforehand, sort of getting, laying the bed for this, getting everybody, you know, up to speed about what we're going to do and when we're going to do it. So that when we did open the doors in January 2007, we already had people we were confident were going to give us money to get everything started because the, the idea was too big to bootstrap. We knew that there was no way we were going to build this virtual world platform just with me and Doug and a couple of people that might have confidence that this thing was going to happen. It was, it was going to be a year-long project at least just to build the technology behind it and would require a team because there's lots of art as well. We require a team of you know 10 people minimum just to get it out the door. And with that sort of threshold, we knew that there was no way to do it without raising money. So it's not like you had like a million dollars in the bank or anything like that? No. Okay. Again, with all these other things that have been successful, how much you actually get paid out or, or not paid out or whatever. I mean, you're in a good, good situation, but it's not like you were like retired. No, no, it, w it wasn't where I could fund it myself. There was no way that was going to happen. But like I said, I, I had enough money to live on uh, for and be comfortable, but uh, it wasn't where I could just, you know, 
And I don't think it's ever a good idea just to take all your, your personal savings and invest it in a company because that's, that's risky. Being an entrepreneur, your chances of success, especially in the early stages, are very slim. I mean, what people say, it's a one in 10 chance of every company that started actually goes lives more than two or three years. And so you, you've got to go with it knowing you, you might fail. There's a very, very good chance that you're going to fail. You can't take a complete risk and put all your money into the business, but you have to at least be able to risk your time because time is valuable as well. Yeah, it makes total sense because like if you were starting a service-based company, right, like you're going to be a broker or something like that, you could have your living money and still be fine, but you actually need money to actually start the game too. So you need two pots of money, right? It's just, it's the one that I'm living on and have with my family that I've saved up. But then if you're making a game, it costs a lot of money, right? And I mean, I didn't know exactly how much, but that's what I was trying to get to. And you kind of helped me get the insight that it was going to, it seems like it's going to cost a few hundred thousand dollars. So even if you had a few hundred thousand dollars in your bank account, like, I didn't know a part of it. And this was why I asked it is like, was motivation, right? If you're getting money from friends and family versus even if you just put a couple hundred thousand dollars of your own money, if you could do it all yourself, you might not be as motivated because you're like, oh, I'm just letting myself down. But if you're going to take it from other people and you have a conscious, then you usually don't want to lose your friends and family over you playing World of Warcraft instead of focusing on a game and trying to help them and help yourself. It is a big incentive to know that, uh, you know, you've got that weight on your shoulders. It's not just you on the line. So when you started off in 2007 doing this, like you knew it was going to take a year or two. And is that how long it took? We launched our first game in April 1st of 2008. So was that 16 months from the day we opened an office to the day we launched the product? Uh, we got really lucky along the way. There's a, a group called TechCrunch. We presented to TechCrunch and TechCrunch voted us one of the top 40 startups in the world. They took us down to San Francisco and put us on stage. That's where we raised our real money. We raised about a million dollars in total from just small investors, you know, $25,000, dollars $60,000 at a time from small investors. We got that first $1.1 million together. And that got us to the point where we had a nice prototype to show around. And then we went down to San Francisco. TechCrunch put us on stage. And uh, that's when we got on the radar of the Intel Corporation. And Intel and uh, the Skype guys decided to actually give us the real money. The millions of dollars that we're going to require to actually take this to market and market it and get customers to play it. Was it just this one game or were you working on different games too at this point in time? No, our world was our, our number one game. Everything was behind that game. In fact, we didn't build another game until 2012 uh, when we built Vegas World. So first, you know, four or five years of the company, our world was our focus. So yeah, I think you did kind of quickly walk us through and that makes sense. So how you're able to get money, how you're starting making marketing, like you need a lot of money to market, I would imagine, because just making the game is not even good enough. So can you just walk us through up till Vegas world? Our world was uh, uh, this virtual world for, for young girls. 11 to 15 was kind of the target age. We did pretty well with it. It got us to profitability. But, um, you know, it kind of plateaued at around 2010, 2011. So we, we knew that to take the coming to the next level, that our world wasn't going to be the product to get us there, that we need to expand beyond just our world. Not only that, but, you know, it was a mature game by that point. It was, you know, three years old, had tons and tons of content, but it wasn't going to be like we were going to do things to it that would completely radically change it. We just knew that we had a great game for that particular audience. So we started thinking about what would be the, what would be the next product. I had worked on, when I was at iWin, a game called uh, virtualvegas.com. And that game was super popular. You didn't have movable avatars, but you did have a snapshot of yourself. And there was chat 
uh, around all the games. So you played games like blackjack and poker and things, but uh, with just a, you know, just text chat. And, a, and an image that you kind of put together of yourself. It wasn't like a you know avatar like we had in our world. So I thought, let's give that a shot. Let's do something where it's the fun of Las Vegas, but set in a virtual world. And with our avatars that we had built on our world. In fact, everything from our world was practically just repurposed to be part of Vegas world. We took our world and we made it into a game for adults. A little bit different costumes and things because the stuff in our world is very fantasy oriented. I mean, one of the most popular things was uh, people to have angel wings in the game on their avatar. And we felt like that was not what was going to be interesting for adults, that they'd want uh, different kinds of costumes. So that was the idea, just to take the our world platform, which we knew young girls really enjoyed, and build this uh, this sort of virtual Vegas experience. You know, I'm still going to get paid, but I realize that if I make a twenty or $30,000 sale, I might only get 15000 That's me. I wish I had taught, wow, if I had talked to you a year ago, because part of the reason I get suckered into salarying these people, they're like, I have to pay my bills. And I wish I had known about that. I can't believe no one's like ever said that to me because I'm like, that's how I should be structuring everything. So that's awesome. That's exactly what I should have been doing. So yeah, I appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon. Yeah, thank you. I've been listening to your show for in the last couple of years. I always listen to like my workout. I like how you like really dive in and you know, just asking like the typical questions like, okay, tell me more. What was the challenges? How'd you overcome it? Cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. So why do you want to become a Patreon? I just, yeah, I just want to support you, man. Any feedback you have for me to try to get more members? Because it'll help you and other people, the more members I can get. I didn't know what the pricing was. I just kind of glanced at it in such an amount that people, it's like a Netflix model. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, you would like check in once a month and still, you know, it's adding value. But I think just kind of like say, hey, guys, it's only like, you know, it's only three cups of coffee. <laughs> that was 2012. And I guess, were you profitable after? I mean, I don't know if profit was really what you're hunting for. If you're just trying to grow, like how do you figure it out the financials when you're growing, trying to make these games? Finally, I guess, make money off them. And then you got investors too. Yeah. So uh, like I said, we hit break even in 2010, but we were just barely profitable. The business was not at risk of ever of going away. We were making enough money to cover all of our bills and pay our people. We've never missed payroll in the, in the entire history of the company. But we knew we weren't going to hit a home run with just our world, that we needed something else to take us to the next level. And then obviously then you're saying the Vegas world came out and then eventually Casino World, which you kind of walked us through the two of those. So I'm just looking about the last 10 years or whatever. Has anything else substantially happened or like what's been the growth like since then? Because it's been about 10 years since Vegas World came out. Well, with the launch of Vegas World within six months or so, we knew we had a tiger by the tail. We really started to grow super fast. We got lucky in that we formed at the time we formed a relationship with Yahoo. Yahoo had a game site and they agreed to put Vegas World on Yahoo Games and they sent us tons and tons of traffic and they were sort of perfect marketing partner for us. And so that game, we went from three, four, five million a year in revenue to 10, 12, 13 in revenue within just a couple of years. So it was, it was a big jump and we went from 20 employees to 40 employees in just a couple of years as well. So we, we grew fast from a revenue standpoint, and we also built up the team dramatically to sort of be in line with that new revenue we were generating. Well, what was the biggest difference in you growing, you know, your own company here when you were just about 50 years old, when you started that first one versus all the stuff you had done before? Is there anything we could learn from, for especially anyone who's listening now? You know, one of the concepts that my partner and I 
developed when we first sat down to think about the company was, first and foremost, let's make a place where we want to work. If you're going to own a company and you're going to hire people and you're going to do this thing and you're going to you go, for, go for it, make it a place where you want to be. Because we figured if it was a place we wanted to work, even if it didn't work out, even if everything kind of fell apart after a few years, we'd have fun, right? It would be an enjoyable experience because what we didn't want to have is a, a grind and a, and a bad experience of uh, building a company where it was just so much about the work that it wasn't fun to work there. And so I think that's one of the things we did the best job at. I mean, if you look at our website, if you were at our conference room in Seattle, you'd see we've been voted uh, one of the top 100 companies to work for in the state of Washington five years in a row. Inc. Magazine voted us the, I think we were the 275th best place to work in the United States. We've really done a great job, I think, of building an organization and building a team, building a company where people like to work there. Success comes from the success of building a, a great team and a, and a great environment. So that, that's the one, one thing that, that kind of, I think people need to keep in mind and don't often keep in mind enough is like, this is a huge risk, be an entrepreneur, have fun for the ride and make it enjoyable for everybody that is on the ride with you. Was anything harder than you thought it would be? I think the hardest part is the responsibility of having people's livelihoods under your control. There were several points during the life of the company where it looked like we might not make payroll. And so I had to, you know, do a lot of juggling to figure out how are we going to get enough money in the bank by this Friday so that we don't miss payroll. And so that responsibility and knowing that people that work for you, that have families, that have kids, that have wives, that have house payments that, that they need to make and the commitments that they have, that that comes down to you too. If you don't make your commitment to them, that you're going to mess with their world in a serious way as well. So that that part was much harder than anything I'd experienced in the past, or anything that I was, uh, you know, had really thought about. Is that you know you you have people's lives and futures in your hands as an entrepreneur that convince people to come to work for you. I've heard that before because it's different from just being profitable versus like managing cash flow. And again, you brought up the thing about flow, but I was wondering like how were you able to actually to make those payrolls when you were so close that you didn't know if you were going to make it. I mean, did you go to like senior citizen communities and get some old ladies to sign up on this or <laughs> how'd you do it? Well, for, for a very long time, I had an Excel spreadsheet, which had all of our bills and all of our cash that was coming in the door and how much net we would have. So I, I, I knew to the day when I could pay a bill. So I, I would say, okay, on Wednesday, we're going to be able to pay this bill. On Thursday, we're going to pay this bill based upon the, the you know, what I knew was coming in and, and, and revenue from the games. So it was, it was a daily, uh, daily balancing act of just trying to figure out which, which bills I can pay when. And it's, it's super stressful. So would you just have to go raise more money every once in a while? There was a point where we were about to launch a Vegas World and we, we needed to fill a gap. Just really because Vegas World was going to need some marketing, and marketing is super expensive on the internet, uh, as I'm sure you've, you've had experience with on your podcast. So we did do it, get a loan from our, our investors, and we gave them some extra equity in the company for providing that loan, and that helped get us to the, to the next level as well. Because otherwise, it would have been a slower start. We we would have had to, you know, as I described, we were profitable but not hitting it out of the park at that time. And uh, it would have been, you know, a matter of like trying to figure out how to fit in these new marketing expenses along with all the other expenses of running the company. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Also, you told me you spent some time thinking about the book choices because normally, in case anyone doesn't know, on the website, I always have like four questions that ask my guests. They send to me. It's always on our website so we can compare what people have used in the past to help them. And you had some thoughts on the book choices that you had suggested that I guess, again, people can go to our website and check out. But you already mentioned Flow. You said that was an important book. Were there some others that you thought that were really important that might help people out? There's a book called Good to Great, which probably everybody knows about. It's a very great business book. There's a story in there about the creation of the, of the Sony Corporation. And the Sony Corporation was started as a result of just a group of uh, businessmen getting together, and they only knew that they wanted to work together. They had no idea what business they wanted to do, but they wanted to work together. And so they spent time trying to figure out what that business might be. So that's what gave me this idea of that. That's the first thing is like, who do you want to work with? And who do you think is a good fit for you? If you find a good partner and you find a good fit in that respect, then being successful in business is going to be that much easier. If that's the first thing, if, if you just form a relationship with someone purely on the business basis, not because you really want to work with them, that's much more difficult because you're going to spend a lot of time with your business partner. It's almost like a marriage. You know, you're, you're really joined at the hip. There are times when I, I spent more time with my partner than with my wife, right? I'm with them every day at the office and then we're on calls at night. So I think that's, that was a really great book and sort of, you know, giving this idea and this sort of impetus to say the most important thing in starting a company is like who you start it with. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I appreciate you bringing this up. I mean, looking back at you told us some of the hardest things when you were starting your company or what you've done over the last basically 15 years. But I don't know if there's anything else because it did sound like everything's worked out pretty well for you that there really hasn't been any super obstacles as far as like divorce or I guess almost not meeting payroll. That had to be much more stressful when you're owner a company versus not. But is there anything else that you can think of that might help people out before we get off the call? From my point of view, everything starts with your people. You can have a great business idea. You can have uh, great investors. But if, if you don't have great people and take care of those great people, then, um, you know, things can fall apart pretty quickly. So our mantra is that if we have a great team that we take care of and invest in, everything else will be successful from there. Or that's our best chance of success anyway, is that you take care of the team first. So that's our most important priority is making sure that our team's taken care of because they're the ones that do everything that makes us successful. I think it comes kind of full circle. Like, even though we're talking about video games and whatnot, it's always been based around kind of community or interaction with people. And like, if you have a good friend, like you said, you had a good developer that you know he was going to be good and that you really enjoyed hanging out with. I mean, y'all didn't know what company you're going to start or what game you're going to start. But if you found that person, that's way more important than I think finding the idea. So if anyone now is like thinking of like, maybe they know another go-getter, right? That, hey, I really wish I could team up with that person. Maybe I'm not 100% sure like what we would do, but maybe put it out there and just brainstorm. Because if you don't put it out there, then nothing would happen. Like if you would have never said anything to Doug, your co-founder, he doesn't sound like the personality that might reach out and come up with that idea. So that's one thing, maybe the main thing that I'm pulling from that maybe I, even I could learn from or other people could learn from is that you took that opportunity. You told him about your idea. If he says no, then he says no. But at least you like you want to spend time with people that you enjoy because and you know who are kind of like hard workers that, hey, we're going to figure something out. I think the other thing to look for is what makes a good fit in a partner is someone who's good at things that you aren't. So Doug and I are a great match from that perspective. Like from a creative and business standpoint, that's my specialty. That's what I'm really good at from a tech standpoint and from a coding standpoint. 
nobody can be Doug. So I knew that would be a great fit just because we have complementary skills. Well, thanks for coming on, Derek. And I guess if anyone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you? Yeah, Derek at Flowplay, D-E-R-R-I-C-K at flowplay.com. Always happy to chat with anybody that has uh, questions about being an entrepreneur. And I mentor a few companies, so uh, send me questions. Usually I can find out why people are doing an interview. Most people are just, all the guests that I have on are really, the reason I pick them is they're nice enough. They're going to spend their time. They're not really trying to sell anything to come on here. But I mean, I'm just curious from your point of view, why did you want to do this interview? Just because, I mean, if I'm putting myself in your shoes, you just recently sold a company for a lot of money. Like I'm just trying to yeah, figure out why you want to do the interview. I love, really love working with entrepreneurs and I think getting, you know, my story out there, if it can help other people figure out how to navigate this path, then, uh, you know, it's something I want to do, something I want to share. Well, awesome. But yeah, well, I guess they have your email if they want to reach out. And again, that, that was just something that just came in my head. I'm like, if I was in his spot, maybe I'll just be thinking about retirement and not even worried about doing this type of interview. So if y'all are listening now, be sure to reach out to Derek, say thank you for doing the email and to all the past guests, because i Really do appreciate you spending the time telling your story. I think it's helped a lot of people. It's helped me. And again, thanks for coming on. No worries. Thanks, Austin. I know what you're thinking right now. You want more tech-based interviews, don't you? Well, if you become a Patreon member, we've got plenty of extra interviews for you right now. Just jump on over to the Patreon feed. Plus, I've got a special spreadsheet that has every interview categorized by industry. So you can easily jump to interviews that will help your business immediately. So to become a member, just check out our website, millionaire-interviews.com. And if you made it this far into the podcast and you aren't a Patreon member, well, then what's holding you back?